Hello everyone, we are back with another episode of the Strategic Whimsy Experiment. Today we are reviewing a film that has made a shit ton of money. <laughs> Sarah, what movie are we reviewing today? Avatar. Ooh, yes. <laughs> can you can you give everyone a little backstory behind your point of pride <laughs> for Avatar <laughs> and why this is a monumental episode? <laughs> I have never seen Avatar before this recording. Um, I remember when it came out, all of my friends saw it and they loved it. And they were like, oh my gosh, it's so great. All of this stuff. So because of all the hype, I had no desire to see it. And it's been a a point of pride for me that I had never (laughs) seen Avatar. It's weird. I know that's a weird thing to be prideful about, but it is what it is. But for the sake of strategic whimsy, Mm -hmm. I watched Avatar and here we are. I mean, this film is the top grossing film of all time. So it warrants a, a view, just one. You don't have to watch it It, many times, but just one. It does. (laughs) It does. I think that everybody should see this at least once. I don't think you need to see it more than once, but many, many millions of people would beg to differ. But at (laughs) least once, yes, you need to see this. Uh, Do you want to reveal which is the other point of pride? Or should we save that for a different episode? Oh, that's another James Cameron film. (laughs) His other famous, famous, famous film that everybody knows him for. I have never seen Titanic. (laughs) And my job in the world, my sole purpose is to break all of these points of prides for Sarah just for the fun of it because it brings me slight joy. And I don't know other than... Avatar and Titanic if Mm -hmm. I am proud about having not seen a movie Mm. could be wrong there could be another one it's also ironic that they're both James Cameron films that is really ironic yeah so there could be something there but um yeah I don't know if there's any others that I feel this sense of pride about having not seen see I kind of have a little bit of pride of not having seen all 17 though that number probably is now more like 20 of the Marvel films. But it's yeah, also... Yeah, I think we're at like 21. 21. Okay, yeah. I think. Could be See, wrong. I've probably seen about four out of the 21. <laughs> so maybe as long as I keep that percentage at an even like 25%. <laughs> there you my, go. My, that'll be my point of pride. <laughs> you know, and I applaud you for that one. I'm I'm too far in it now. I have to... I have to see the rest because I've seen so many of them. So (laughs) I wish I had only seen four, but you know, here we are. You know, they're just really good at piquing curiosity that it's beginning to suck me in a little bit. (laughs) We'll see how long I will shall resist. (laughs) Anywho, long tangent aside, today we're reviewing the film Avatar. It was a huge, huge moneymaker, and there are sequels, many, many sequels happening, so we'll talk about that at some point in the episode, maybe towards the end, but it was a smashing success. I believe James Cameron had this script kind of hidden away for about 12 years or so, Um, and at the time when he had first begun working on the script, the technology yet had not been up to par enough to create this film with the vision that he wanted. So alas, 12 years later, it's 2009. This film made $2.78 billion. So casual. Um, and Sarah and I were like, gosh, we, we have to review this one. I, I had seen it. Um, I would say probably at least six to seven years ago. And I wasn't a huge fan, but I have to say, The second time around, surprised myself with how much I enjoyed this film. Uh, Especially the the performance capture technology is just wildly fascinating to me. So that might be part of why I just have so much respect for this film and the dedication to 
so many of the details of creating this whole Navi language and just how decadent the the visuals are uh, was just absolutely captivating. And I remember at the time, like six to seven years ago, everyone was talking about all the visuals and stuff. And I was like, yeah, okay, yeah, whatever. But this time around, just thinking about and seeing so much of what went into creating that just blew me away. So I have to say I surprised myself. I expected to not like this film even more the second time around, but I, I, I got sucked in. I must admit, I got sucked in this time around. Sarah, what are your they thoughts? They got you. They did get me. Ugh. I... I liked the visuals of it. I was amazed at the, you know, performance capture and all of those things that you just mentioned. And I hated literally everything else about the film. Like, Oh, I'm so intrigued to hear about it. I, I mean, the visuals were stunning. It was an absolutely gorgeous film. That was a huge feat. And they changed the way that movies are made with avatar like that in and of itself is absolutely incredible and why i think that everybody should see this at least once i did not care about the protagonist i yeah i didn't care about him i was like (laughs) go away um i didn't care for it i didn't care for the storyline i thought Mm -hmm. it was pieced together I felt like they were trying to, they focused so much on the creation of this world that they didn't create a good story. And it was almost three hours. Oh my gosh. I can't watch a movie that's that long. I had to take breaks in the middle. I did dishes. I cooked lunch. Like, oh, it was so long. And I was so ready for it to be done (laughs) by the time it was done. So, yeah, I got to, like, the one-hour mark, and, like, I was kind of diagramming the story in my brain like I always do when I watch a film. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be a forever movie, isn't it? And I looked and saw that it was two hours and 40 minutes long, and I was like, oh, no. Oh, okay. And just had to pace myself a little bit. But I think the visuals are absolutely beautiful, and I'm so glad that James Cameron waited to create this movie the way that it should have been created. You know, he did Mm -hmm. it right. He didn't jump the gun when he had the script ready to go in the 90s. He was patient and he waited till the technology caught up with his imagination. And it was absolutely beautiful. I just didn't care for the story. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm super excited to dive into this episode because I had a very different experience where I was just like captivated by it. And I I was like one in the morning and I was like, oh, I should – at midnight, I was like, oh, I should go to bed. I can watch the rest of the hour the next day. But I just had to keep watching. So it's super – it's going to be a fun episode to dive into all of our different opinions because we we often – we often – see similar themes and different parts will annoy us or captivate us, but I'm intrigued and excited to talk about this one with you because I think we see super differently. So we both talked about the visuals. I think let's just, let's just start with that one first. Um, it's probably the biggest characteristic of this film that everyone's going to be talking about for decades on so let's let's tackle that one first one of my theories of why I have such a reversal in opinion about this film is (laughs) because I've seen so many other CGI animation films since six seven years ago when I had first seen Avatar and it was so refreshing to see CGI that was done with so much more expression and so much more um, nuance and beauty to it compared to a lot of the other CGI films that are coming out now. If you've listened to previous episodes, that's um, one of my pet peeves is the overly CGI'd 
animation and action sequences that just kind of lose the magic because they are so technology heavy. And about halfway to about three quarters of the way through this film, I just kept noticing all of the facial expressions and nuances and muscles and uh, body movement that the character, the avatars had. And I was like, wow, that is really good animation until I researched more into it and realized that it was actually performance capture. So everything you're seeing on screen was actually performed by the actors that was captured and then um, created into the digital images. And it's like, gosh, that makes so much sense now. Why those facial expressions could be so nuanced. Why um, the look in their eye was so much deeper and more expressive than just if this was created solely from digital technology. And I was just so captivated by that. And it was so refreshing to see this kind of more beautiful fusion of a real life performance with technology in this landscape of very heavily CGI, completely built from technology type of visuals that we're seeing a lot of now. So that breath of fresh air for me was really exciting to see. Yeah, I was amazed at how well it held up because, you know, usually you go back and you watch movies that were created a decade ago and you go, oh yeah, that didn't age very well. But this movie can be timeless because of the quality with which it was created. Um, for me, I loved some of the little details that they added in that they really didn't have to add in. There were certain times when the camera would like pan across the the jungle following the characters and you would see like little creatures scurrying around or bugs moving or you see like leaves falling or you'd see these little details that made it seem so much more real. And I so appreciated that they took the time and the energy to add those in. Otherwise it would have lost that extra element of realness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I noticed similar things around like the, the, lighting and shadows in the in the yes. forest as well and the just how detailed they were with the way that leaves would fall from a tree or the shadows coming in from the sunlight through this like whole mesh of trees which is from a technology perspective incredibly difficult to figure out what that would look like and render it to feel so realistic the attention to detail was incredible oh my gosh yeah, the the artists that were on this project are wow, they're incredible. They to create an entire world like they did and make it so immersive and realistic was I mean, honestly, that's that's how you do it. Like mm -hmm. other filmmakers take note. That is how you create a world. Mhm. Yeah, and even things like um the planes, they would create like a, create something out of wire, attach the sensors to it and literally like fly them in a, on a stage by moving them around with their hands as if they were like little kids playing around with toy planes when they could have easily used miniatures and just shot those or created some um, digital renders of planes flying through the sky. But they, they put so much effort into creating this truly from a performance perspective that I mean I'm just was so in awe of it and watching a lot of the behind the scenes videos after watching this film where you would see the side by side of the actors in these ridiculous suits on a green screen stage um, in full on like fluorescent lighting on one side of the screen you'd see that and on the right hand side of the screen you would see the digital format of them and that was so captivating to me and I think this film uses so many components of film from the soundtrack gosh the soundtrack is beautiful the soundtrack the visuals the acting all of these pieces together just created so much magic for me that was like 
oh, this is what film is about, or you're just like lost in this fantasy world. And I, I have to say, I'm not typically a big like fanatic around sci-fi or fantasy films. I actually tend to like the more um, real life dramas, but this one like sucked me in, absolutely sucked me in. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was more interested in how they created the film than the film itself, I think. <laughs> so, like, after I was done with it, I watched some videos that Jen so kindly sent to me um, about how it was made. Like 2 a.m. <laughs> yeah, it was great. I was like, it was a lot to wake up to. And I was like, oh, that's fun. Um, but I was so intrigued in how they mm-hmm. made the film because it was such a, a leap forward in... Mm-hmm technology and in cinema itself so watching how it was created and all of the hours and hours and hours that it took to actually create this film like it's it's truly impressive and I get why it won so many things why it grossed so much money Mm -hmm. like it makes sense it's definitely worth rewarding that kind of ingenuity Mm -hmm. yeah it I guess we can talk about the sequels now because it's kind of a good segue, but there are four sequels coming out. <laughs> Avatars 2 through 5 are coming out. The, the next one's Avatar 2 is coming out in 2020 of December. 2020. Yep. Uh, Avatar 3 is coming out 2021. So we'll get more of Pandora, but it'll be really interesting to see how those perform in the box office because that newness and freshness and uh, awe of the visuals will no longer be as exciting as the first time around. And it's been like 11 years. So whether or not people are still invested in the story, we'll, I guess, wait and see. The box office numbers will tell us uh, how well those will do. So I, I'm, I'm intrigued to see what they do next. I I understand the point of sequels. I get it. It's a it's a monetary decision. However, this film does not need a sequel. Mm-hmm. It really really doesn't. And the fact that they've they're waiting 11 years to release the sequel is an odd choice to me because any momentum that, and I mean, granted, you need to write the story, you need to shoot it, and, you know, that's going to take years for them to create, but you would think that they wouldn't want to wait for over a decade before releasing the sequel to this. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm very curious how that's going to go. I don't want to see this movie, if I'm being <laughs> completely honest. Um and I think, I I think it's obviously going to make money. Like, it's it's going to. But I think with the state of our the way that we consume media today, doesn't really lend itself to theatrical releases. And so I wonder how streaming services and things like that might detract from the amazing release that they had over a decade ago when those things didn't really exist. Yes. Oh my gosh. You bring up a great point that I kept thinking about while watching this is that we, Sarah and I watched this on Amazon prime on our 13 inch. I don't know. Maybe yours is a 15 inch. Mine was a 13 inch laptop. (laughs) I watched it in bed on my (laughs) tiny little screen. And I just kept thinking, gosh, this would have been, so much more magical to see in a in a theater with this giant screen with Pandora just unfolding in front of me. And the first time I watched Avatar was actually not in theaters. It was also on a laptop. So you're right. In the new age of streaming services, I, I also am curious to see how this film will do because it's inherently a lot more powerful on a on a in a theater setting versus on a streaming service. But 
so many people are watching and consuming films now on streaming instead of in theater. So be curious to see how it'll do. And I will hand it to the creators because they're filming all the sequels at once. Yeah. So that I think is brilliant. I mean, that's a huge chunk of change to put up front, but then they can be more strategic in their, their distribution. And if one of the films doesn't do so well in the box office, it's not going to make or break the entire series. So from a, a creator perspective, that makes a lot of sense because then you can have your entire story told mm-hmm. um, without the potential, like we've seen in so many other series that did so well on the first one and they made the sequels and it got worse. They're going to finish this all five Avatar movies, <laughs> we're going to be able to see the entire long story um, as James Cameron wants us to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are also some really interesting theories of the competition that inherently has arisen now between Avatar and Marvel and the Star Wars films hmm. that are all slated for the next couple of years. Like 2009, Star Wars was still in its grave, still beginning to arise right so it sure was disney's gonna have some interesting scheduling things to play around with as far as release (laughs) dates and things like that because you've already got a huge fan base for those two other worlds and franchises and here's another one that's arising out of the ashes 11 years later man disney is just raking in the money holy cow the recent fox acquisition wow i i read an article that calls it the disney death star which cracked me up it's so apt (laughs) it's so good i'm like yes you are correct (laughs) i just hope it's more of like an episode four disney death star that's smaller and dinkier versus (laughs) the episode seven one where it's like oh it's the death star but bigger (laughs) Yeah, I doubt it. It's it's probably going to be a giant Death Star mm-hmm. of epic proportions. Yeah, I, I think so. Well, and there is our Star Wars reference that we often include in every episode. There's that Hey-o. one. There we go. <laughs> we need like a little sound effect for every time that happens. Like a little R2 beeps. <laughs> okay, so visual effects aside... Sarah, what did you think of the plot line and the story Ugh. of this film? I did not like it. Um, okay, what parts? Man, I I felt like James Cameron was trying to say things, but I felt like he was trying to say too many things. Mm. And to me, it was basically just a CGI version of... Pocahontas and Fern Gully <laughs> mixed together and then you just throw a Michael Bay movie there in the middle and maybe some dinosaurs like <laughs> that that was it like, l- like the climax of the film of course I don't know why in like every like fantasy or like superhero movie at the climax I'm going can you just be done already but during Avatar when all of the the space shuttle helicopter things converge on Pandora and they're in their formation and they're about to blow everything to crap. All I could think was, how did this turn into a Michael Bay movie? It was so beautiful. It was this gorgeous, rich, luscious world that you have created. And now we're into this like shoot 'em up movie how did we get here what is going on (laughs) Uh, so I was just I was I was perplexed the whole time I was like what is the point of this movie it was beautiful and normally that's enough for me but it felt like he was trying to make a comment on either um, the way that Native Americans have been treated in America, or I guess the way that white people have colonized other cultures, or, and or, maybe, the the state of the environment. And I'm like, 
that's that's a lot of things to say in one film without ever really making it clear. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I there was just there was a lot going on, and I was like, "What are you trying to get me to walk away with something?" I wish that they wouldn't have even tried to include a message in it and the visuals would have been enough and it would have been stunning, but they, it felt like they were trying to do too much. Mm. So you felt like there was, um, the, the themes of the film were a bit muddled together so that neither of the, any of the three were not as effective or powerful as they could have been. Yeah. I just, it, yeah, it was not effective for me. Like James Cameron, if you're trying to say something to me, I don't know what you were trying to say. Mm-hmm. Keep making pretty things. You're good at that. <laughs> oh, no. Don't do the other stuff. <laughs> so I wonder if your disdain for the protagonist also contributes to why the plot felt a little less effective. Because if, for example, you as a viewer are invested in Jake Sully's plot line, then there's all of these other themes going on, but the like main driver of the plot is around whether or not he will be able to like join the Navi people and kind of be released from his old life and his old self to this new self. It's kind of like the the central driving force. So I yeah, I wonder if and that contributes to <laughs> the it was it was so obvious that that was what was going to happen. Like I was never once worried. Is, is he going to be, is he going to pass the tests? Is he going to be accepted? Is he going to be betrayed by his own people and then have to fight for this other, like there was no question ever. Like to me, there weren't a lot of stakes in it. I was like, I know exactly how this movie is going to unfold from like minute one, like it wasn't, I wasn't on the edge of my seat wondering like, oh my gosh, are they going to survive? Oh, what's going to happen? Oh no, they back, like they stabbed him in the back. Like, I was just like, yeah, that's, that's how this would go. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. I think even from the very early scenes, um, when he's talking to Quart, what's his name? Quaritch? Something like that. Big beefy dude. Quaritch, big, yeah, that's his name. Beefy dude. That will now be his name. Big beefy dude that just loves to just <laughs> pull out a gun and start shooting this, this, his character in a nutshell. <laughs> when he's talking to him at the very beginning of the film and they make this deal that he's going to get his legs back if he, do, if he goes through with this. I'm like, well... We all know that that's not what's going to happen because here's a selfish yeah. motive. And as you connect with these people, these avatars, your selfish motive is going to decrease and your inherent like greater good instincts are going to kick in and we're going to see this great triumphant battle happen at the end where you are fighting for a larger cause beyond your own selfish desires. And so it, it really was set up very clearly from the beginning. Yeah, and I didn't, there was nothing particularly interesting about the protagonist for me. Like, he, I think the premise was brilliant that a a paraplegic marine would do this thing as a way to, like, serve his country. Ooh. There I go, losing my voice. That <laughs> um, he would do this courageous thing and go to this other world and have this ability to uh, protect and serve and all of these things. He could use his marine training for something that he couldn't on Earth. Like, that's absolutely brilliant. I love that. But there was nothing else that I liked about the character <laughs> other than the premise around him. Yeah, I I agree that the character himself wasn't particularly compelling, but what really drove the plot forward for me, I was hooked in. I'm going to just say that I was invested. And what I really wanted to see throughout the entire film, what this whole film was driving towards, is the moment where he is able to be like fully released into this new self. 
because um, you just see so much of his inner turmoil at the beginning around his body and just feeling so frustrated. I mean, this is set up early on, I know, with him running through the forest for the first time and he gets to experience what that's like to run again. And I just was waiting for that final moment at the end of the film and I knew it was coming the whole time, but I was just waiting to see him able to be his avatar self in all its fullness and truly like be quote unquote reborn again. And I kept, I I asked myself after watching this film, if the visuals were not as beautiful and compelling and if this world of Pandora was not as um, captivating, would the storyline be as effective? And for me, the answer is no. Like, I think if this was like this really broad strokes animation of these avatar worlds, like I would not care. I would not be invested in them and I would not be captivated. But because of the visual effects, it actually made the storyline a lot more powerful because I kept wanting him to be back and to return into this world. And I, as a viewer, kept wanting to be back in Pandora and those juxtaposed shots between like this really beautiful luscious image of Pandora or the avatars and they would quickly cut to human land with all of the machinery and this like very monochromatic gray brownish tones like it was so so much contrasted from those two worlds that it just kind of kept forcing me to want to keep seeing more and more and more of Pandora and discover new places in Pandora. And if it's through the eyes of Sully, great. I don't, I don't, I don't really care that much about um, his character, but that his character was like a vehicle into Pandora for me as a viewer. And I wanted him to finally be able to stay in Pandora and not have to keep going back. So it's a weird, like, motivating driving force for the film it's like oh I want to go back to this world with this character that's like kind of okay but like I just want him to stay in this world that was my big motivating factor for like wanting to keep seeing what happens next and what happens next which is absolutely brilliant because that gets the viewer more invested in Pandora itself like even from the beginning, you're like, whoa, this world is so cool. Why are you guys trying to destroy it? That's jacked up. And then the more time that you spend in Pandora and you get to know the people and the the nature and how everything's connected. And I feel like Pocahontas again, but it's mm-hmm. fine. And the more time you spend in there, then you're emotionally invested so that when the greedy general and capitalist people come in to try and destroy it, you are taken aback even more and like no don't do that it's so beautiful so it's absolutely brilliant the way that they set it up like that I just wasn't very invested (laughs) I was like oh I see what you're doing that's a good job (laughs) (laughs) that is so funny yeah it's a it's one of those rare films where I I feel like the the visual effects contributed so much Mm -hmm. to the plot line usually the plot line can sometimes stand for itself even if the effects are bad or the visuals are like so so but for this one the visual effects are actually incredibly pivotal to how effective the film is which I'm trying to think of other films that are that way but typically the characters of or the plot line is compelling enough or they can stand on their own enough that even if the visual effects are okay we tend to just give it some grace and still we're still just as long for the ride but this one really is not that way and that could be part of the reason why I'm struggling with it is because I value plot and character Mm -hmm. development so much that to have a film that did not do a very good job in those arenas in my opinion I'm I'm not sure how to process it because like Mm -hmm. the visuals are are stunning and it's absolutely wonderful. And then the other parts I'm like, Oh, so I don't know how to reconcile the two. And the fact that the two are in one movie together, I I'm struggling to process it a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) And that's that inner writer in you coming out. Mm -hmm. 
Oh yeah. Coming mm-hmm. out real strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So some of the plot points that I'm curious your perspectives on, these are plot points that I thought, oh, they went there. Oh, good. Okay, I appreciate that. Is the one where they couldn't save Grace and mm-hmm. they had the, the brother die, they had Trudy die, they had Natiri's dragon, or what is, I don't know if it's a dragon, he's her creature, die. And... I, I I appreciated that a lot. I was impressed that they were willing to give you all of those emotional jabs and those beats so that you can see why there's this like greater uprising and this greater force. Usually there's like the dad will die and that's like the biggest thing that will <laughs> most traumatic thing that will happen, right? Like after the dad died, I was like, okay, we've got the We've hit the quota of deaths that will happen in this film. <laughs> and then when the brother and Trudy and the dragon and Grace, like, I I was impressed. I was like, yes, I'm here for this. Yeah. Sigourney Weaver's point of the movie was to die and to be the, you know, one of the catalysts for him to really change. Uh, so I knew that she was going to die right away so I was glad that they did I was like oh good job like I'm always a fan when they kill off characters yes um (laughs) I I did appreciate that they were they were willing to do that uh it just it wasn't very impactful for me because Mm -hmm. so many other people also died so it was just like yeah just you know Kill him off. It's fine. Just keep going. <laughs> That's okay. I was sad when her little dragon guy died, though. That was sad. Because I'm like, you're just a little creature. Why would you kill off the dragon flying thing? It's like a pterodactyl. I don't know what it is. Uh, that was sad. <laughs> but I think other than that, I didn't really care about the people dying. Because <laughs> uh, that what it, it's what needed to happen. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I it made Jake Sully's character in that final scene more what's the word I'm trying to look for? It it made it more understandable and gave it more emotional weight when he was fighting because he's now fighting from a place of pain and honor versus just this like very generous spirit where he wants to help them. Like the, he's got personal stakes in it now. Um, whereas I'm trying to think of the film that we talked about this in, but you had mentioned that the character didn't have enough stakes. So, oh, it was Captain Marvel where that Uh, final battle scene didn't feel as impactful because she didn't have to overcome anything or struggle or wrestle with anything to get to the final, like that final battle scene or, um, fight. And I was thinking of you when those people were dying and he was then fighting. I was like, he's got the emotional weight now for why he's fighting. And it feels more more impactful than if all of those people didn't die. I think I was just so perplexed by everything that was happening on the screen. Um, <laughs> I, I don't understand the oh, hierarchy of this culture. Uh, because he gets a a different color pterodactyl and then he's suddenly the leader of everybody, even though like 10 minutes earlier, they were going to kill him because he had betrayed the whole clan. So I was just, I was very, very confused, um, as to how he ascended to such power all because he had an orange pterodactyl instead of his blue one. And then I want to know what happened to the blue pterodactyl because he chose the blue pterodactyl. So is there like a divorce process for this pterodactyl relationship? Like I was just, actually that's what Avatar 2 is going to be about. (laughs) It'll all be happening in pterodactyl court. Pterodactyl uh, court. Yep. And there'll be a whole like 20 minute scene reading the bylaws of. Perfect. I'm here for it. I will see Avatar 2 now. I'll be the first in line. 
That's why they needed to make four more. You know, it's a lot of bylaws to cover. I mean, I got a lot of questions. We'll see how many of them they can answer in their four movies. So the red and orange pterodactyl, and I think it's it's not it's not it's some kind of dragon thing. I don't know what the actual name is. I know we'll I don't remember it. what it was actually called. Oh, uh, we're probably disrespecting their culture by calling it a pterodactyl. But I know we are. But <laughs> I don't. Is dragon better than pterodactyl? Because I think, I think pterodactyl is better than. Okay, we you can call so? it a dragon. Dragon sounds more epic. That's fair. Okay, so the. Red and orange dragon, I believe, was this, it's like the most powerful beast and only five people in their ancestry have ever conquered or, right? So that's why, because it's like this big, rare thing that he then earned their respect because that was something that they valued that he was able to conquer. Which I'm like, how does that, I don't know how that negates a betrayal of your entire culture. Also, (laughs) I mean, you slept with the chief's daughter and then, then you reveal your betrayal. So there's just, there's layers of betrayal here. And so like a, an orange dragon didn't feel like enough to negate all of the betrayal because it was like oh orange dragon cool you can be the leader of our crew and then like 15 other crews so (laughs) we're good now like it's just I don't it didn't make sense to me I I I know she went through her whole monologue of like her dad or her dad's dad whoever somebody had a orange dragon too and why it was so important but I was just like that doesn't feel like enough so, so maybe was, we need I a prequel. I was wrapped up in I that. I think we need a prequel for why the the backstory behind the orange pterodactyl and her father's father. Because you always need a prequel for everything now. <laughs> <laughs> a movie with no stakes and no tension. Yep. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> It'll just be like entirely split screen where you're just seeing all of Avatar prequel and all of Jake Sully's prequel happening simultaneously. <laughs> be great very artsy that'll be their next <laughs> leap in cinema yeah. <laughs> and everybody will be like go home james cameron yeah you put on like one set of headphones for one half of the screen and another <laughs> set of headphones for the other oh that would be the oh, worst God, that'd be awful <laughs> okay so orange pterodactyl was not effective enough for you to no. respect him and okay. i also feel like he didn't maybe that's what it is he didn't earn it like, so okay. If you had the, they specifically chose not to include his battle sequence with the orange pterodactyl. Do you think it yes. would have been more impactful if you had gotten to see him finally, like, struggling to wrestle this big thing and almost not being able to, and then finally being able to? We'll add another twenty minutes onto the film to make it oh, three no. full hours. Like, nope. <laughs> But do you think that would have anything else? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know that that would have helped. It just wasn't set up enough for why that was worthy of them now all pivoting to respect him. I mean, it was one line that Neytiri said. I think it was like in over the course of like ten seconds, she said this like one quick line about it, and that was it. Really, there was no real build up to. Mr. Orange Pterodactyl. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think, I think maybe also like the pacing of the film. Mm. I mean, I did not need any more minutes in that film, but it was, it was such a rapid succession that this happened. And Mm -hmm. I understand why it had to happen that way because it's it's amping up the tension so that you're more invested and you're on the edge of your seat. I get it. But it was just, it was like a minute ago you were going to kill the guy and now he's your leader. Like, that was, that was very quick. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It had to happen. And I understand why it happened. It just didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I also agree. I think the ending, the third act felt very sped up. They just kind of 
went through it. There was like a lot of action happening, a lot of battle scenes happening. And then there's a lot that happened from an, with like relationships between different people too, that kind of sped up really fast towards the end. So Mm -hmm. I would definitely agree with you that the third act felt rushed. Yeah. Yeah. I just, everything happened so quickly. Like, hmm, okay, that's fine. That means that we're at the end. (laughs) Yeah. So a theme that I want to talk about that we've seen in other films that have come out recently is this idea of being able to be reborn again into this other world. Uh, We saw this with Ready Player One. Um, We see this in a lot of like new sci-fi films coming out and TV shows even that are wrestling with the same concept concept of where like where do I belong and where where am I my true self and I think this one deals with similar questions of being able to be a new person or a more enhanced version of yourself in this other universe and how reality starts to feel a lot more drab and a lot less exciting. And this is definitely reflective of emerging technologies that are rising right now around VR and AR and mixed reality. So I am curious your thoughts on that. And and I'm curious how we will see more films coming out in the next couple decades that are kind of reflective of how technology is changing as film kind of changes along with it. I think that this film, it, it took the, um, the whole like rebirth idea in such a different way than we see nowadays. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't escapism which it really could have become like he was doing this thing um, to help himself, maybe help other people. Eh, I'm not so sure, but um, he was using these skill sets that he had, and this was the best way that he knew how to do it. So I think that that was an interesting way for him to like truly become like his truest self. Um, but things like that kind of eh, makes me a little bit nervous with all of our technology that we have because it's so easy to uh, find something else that we we feel more comfortable in or we can feel more like ourselves in instead of actually figuring out a way to be our truest selves here in reality. So like after um, after watching this movie, I had to get out and go outside and like (laughs) had to not be inside looking at a screen anymore like it was just it was too much for me staring at that not like ready player one where I just oh gosh I was so overwhelmed it wasn't like that (laughs) but had I seen avatar in theaters I probably would have felt the way that I felt in ready player one just Mm. so overwhelmed with all of the stimulation on the screen that I just I needed to go and experience reality and, you know, look at real life plants and (laughs) be out in nature for a minute because uh, it's so easy to get wrapped up in in things that we see on the screen. Um, And I think more and more today, people truly express how they feel um, digitally And maybe that's not always the best. Like, I think that there's something to be said about figuring out how we can be the best versions of ourselves as ourselves, not as some, you know, icon on a screen or in some like virtual reality situation, but actually, okay, this is my situation. This is what I'm working with. How can I make this the best possible? You bring up a really interesting point around the the character of Jake Sully, and again, this is the writer in you, uh, where 
if he had not been an ex-Marine and he had just been someone who was, was born with this condition or, you know, went through some unfortunate accident and then was going back to this avatar body over and over again to kind of escape reality, it definitely would have felt more like escapism. Whereas because mm-hmm. he was an ex-Marine, his avatar self is actually close, more closely reflect, reflective of his true self where he was an actual Marine, um, being able to run and do these great feats in the real world. And he now just is only able to do it in the avatar world. But it's, it's kind of this return back to his true self. Whereas if we didn't have that knowledge of that, it would have felt a lot more like he was exploiting this technology to, to just go to Avatar land and ignore all of his current conditions in, in the real world. So that was a very smart characteristic that they chose for Jake Sully's character. Yeah, that was... It's well such done. a good premise for a mm-hmm. character. Like, mm-hmm. I was... Man, when I saw him in that wheelchair, I was like, oh, well done, guys. That's so good. And then it just went downhill from there. Mm-hmm. And especially because he wasn't originally chosen for it as well. He was yeah. kind of forced into it because his brother had passed. was also a really smart move instead of this genius kid or some something like that where he'd created this thing so that he could leave real life to go to this virtual world yes very smart all right well kind of final thoughts are you gonna see avatar 2 are you excited for it what do you expect (laughs) it'll discuss (laughs) what do you want Um, it to talk about what plots do you want want it i want it to talk about uh pterodactyl divorces and um no i don't I don't want to see Avatar 2. I I don't. Uh, <laughs> we can record an episode about it and then I'll go see it, but I probably won't go see it otherwise. <laughs> um, let's see. My final thoughts. Oh, gosh. I have a few of them. Um, well, it was a joy to see uh, Giovanni Ribisi in this film as the capitalist jerk who wanted to, to destroy the planet. Um, I, I just enjoyed him so much. I was like, can we see more of you, please? Um, so he's just a gem. And um, here's something that we disagree about. I was not a fan of the score for this. Oh. Mm-hmm. Because... When I first realized that I wasn't a fan was because I was intentionally noticing the score. And in in films, especially like this, like I feel like you know to, you know it's a really, really good score when you don't really notice it. You know? Mm-hmm. Like I feel like it's it's like with writing, like you know that it's well written when you don't notice the writing itself you're so immersed in the characters that you just you don't oh that was well written like that doesn't really occur to you when something is actually well written and I feel it's the same way with a score in a movie and I was so conscious of all all of the music in it I was so aware of it and some of it seemed very very out of place to me and almost distracted me at times um, and then other times I was like, I know what you're trying to get me to feel with this song, but it just, it didn't hit home for me. That is super interesting. I, one of the reasons I love the score is that it contributed to this, this world of Pandora and helped create a sense of uniqueness in that Pandora was this place that had music that was different than just the traditional swells and epic music, epic cinematic music um, that is often common. So I appreciated the, the, 
the way that they tried to create an identity for the, the, the scenes in the film that were specifically in Pandora and contrasting that with the scenes that were not. But I can see how it, it may be very distracting if you're too focused on it or if it was like, oh, okay, you're trying to make me feel like this is Pandora and it's magical. I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, there were there were a few times when I was like, "Why, <laughs> why, why is that your choice? Why did you go that way with the music right here?" Um, so yeah, it was it distracted me a lot. Mm. You're like, I know you want me to feel like Pandora's magical. <laughs> I I I get that's what you're trying to do. <laughs> uh, and that was me like. 90% of the film I was like I get it I understand what you're trying to get me to do and it's just it's not working for me but I respect you for trying keep making pretty things it'd be funny to go to Pandora world in Disneyland with you because <laughs> you'd be like yeah I see why you put the lights on there when it's nighttime and now it's bioluminescent yeah that, that makes sense good good job <laughs> <laughs> this is why people can't take me places because that's just me all the time I love it I am well I would love to see an avatar 2 they probably won't do this but they might who knows I would love to see uh, Jake Sully's like conversion into his avatar self have some kind of glitch or something goes wrong where he is now, for some reason or another, unable to return back to that his self then. Or something along those lines where that tension and play between he his real-life self and his avatar self is disrupted. I would be, I would love to see that. Maybe that was because it's the main tension point for me for this film and what was the motivating factor and what made it very effective. And I think it'd be really traumatizing to watch him think that he had fully become an avatar and then realize that he didn't and figure out how to make his way back there. But that's what I would love to see in avatar too. Yeah. They'll need some sort of something with him that he needs to overcome. And so that would be a really interesting way to do it. I hope that's what they do. That would be fun. Like they'll either just continue to explore Pandora and and like how there's still this threat of it being destroyed and Jake Silly is now just fully become this heroic avatar. Or they'll continue to play with this, focus more on his character and him having to straddle between these two worlds. Like I could see them going one or one of the two routes. And they're like, no, nope, we'll just leave him in as an avatar. We won't touch it anymore. <laughs> we did enough of that in the first one. <laughs> I hope that they don't do that because, I mean, you got four movies. Mm-hmm. So you can only do Pandora is under attack because humans are greedy, capitalistic jerks so many times. You got four movies. You need something else to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I hope that they do something like that with his character. Because um, that would be so much more interesting as a as like the main plot point while he's trying to protect Pandora. Mm-hmm. You know? So you just you need those layers of tension and complexity, um, yes. especially in movies today. Yeah, like even in those like final scenes of this film, the the tension was he needs to destroy the evil humans. But there's this other competing tension where he is unable to do that, not only because his enemies have these weaponry, but also because he can't even stay in his body to be able to do that. And the mm-hmm. interplay between those three things is what actually was most interesting versus just yes, Avatar versus evil humans must destroy but they are strong. Like, <laughs> it's not interesting. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Yeah. So I hope I hope that they uh, read your mind, you know, years <laughs> ago when they were writing the script, and uh, that they do something in that vein. Yeah. We'll see in 
I guess a year and a half. <laughs> Something to look forward to. I know it'll be really painful for you to go through that year and a half, Sarah, but. I know. I don't. How am I going to occupy myself? I know. Just gonna just, you're, there's this burning here. desire in your soul. Yeah. Yeah. Just longing questions. for Avatar, Avatar 2. <laughs> Man. Longing for the reading of the bylaws. It shall come. Yes. Uh, I want to know, like, how is your society structured that this Yahoo that just betrayed you people is now your leader? Like, what? <laughs> okay, no. I have one final question. <laughs> flying scene and Avatar versus flying scene and How to Train Your Dragon. Who wins? Oh, I was thinking about that while I was watching <laughs> yeah, it, too. Yeah. <sighs> Um, I'm going to say how to train your dragon. Ooh. Um, so? I, I really, really enjoyed both of them, but I remember even though I've seen how to train your dragon multiple times during that flying scene, I am still taken aback every time. And Granted, I have only seen Avatar the one time, but mm -hmm. I don't know that I would have that consistent reaction every time watching Avatar that I do every time I've watched How to Train Your Dragon. Okay. So How to Train Your Dragon wings. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. It wins. <laughs> I have to what disagree. I actually like the one in Avatar more. But mostly... It's due to the fact that I loved getting to see the scenery in Pandora while we were like zipping and zagging throughout the like floating mountains and stuff like that. So I thought the, the scenery around you while you're on this flight was more compelling in, in, in Pandora versus How to Drain Your Dragon World. Okay. Like the Makes floating sense. mountains were so captivating. Yeah, but those were just, really oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I love, I love it when they're like over the water and you see their reflection and they're looking in it and it's just, mm -hmm. it's so fun. Yeah. Either way, I want a dragon. <laughs> that's just, that's the moral of the story. I know that I would injure myself, but it would be great. But you have to form the bond. That's fine. You know, I will you have to let your little, your little hairs my... connect with their little hairs. See, now that whole thing was I so know. weird. Yeah, I agree completely. I would much rather befriend a dragon the way that they did in How to Train Your Dragon as opposed to the weird hair thing. Yeah, the, the hair thing was weirded me out too. And then, like, the scene where they made it and their hair things, like, it was just weird. It's It's all weird. I was... Mm, I was not here for that. <laughs> the whole I see you. I was like, yeah, your eyes work. Congratulations. Can <laughs> we keep going? Oh, one last thing. I also <laughs> hated the scene where she's in her avatar form and she's holding real yes. life human Jake Sully. Like that really <laughs> Weird me out. I was like, I'm fine with both of you being in love in your blue form. I'm all for it, actually. But when you're this giant creature holding this tiny human and like <laughs> embracing it lovingly and caressing it, like I, it breaks, it breaks the magic a little bit for me, and I can't get behind it the same way. Oh, it was so cringy. Oh, I hated it. <sighs> like it was. I get, again, I get what they were trying to do, but I'm like, she man, the execution him. of that scene. <laughs> yeah. We did not need to see that. No, but he needed to see that. He needed to be truly accepted for who he was. Yeah. The little snowflake needed to be loved, and he was, and thus could go on to make four more movies. When the size of, like, half of his face is the size of your eyeball. <laughs> That's when you know something's kind of strange. When your whole hand can, like, cup, like, his entire head. 
something's a little off there. <laughs> oh, that was weird. Anyway, that's my final pet peeve. <laughs> Do you have any other final thoughts that you would like to share? Um, oh, this is one final thought that I had while watching this, is that I, f- I felt like some of the scenes where um, it was a quieter moment had a lot of cutting between shots that I didn't feel like were necessary. And I think it would have been more impactful to keep that really slow, smooth camera movement instead of cutting back and forth between different angles. The, the scene that I really noticed this most in was when Jake as an avatar form is it's very earlier on in the scene in the in the film where Iwa's her little seeds are all falling on him it's at night it's this really kind of peaceful quiet moment that he has with Neytiri and they cut back and forth so many times between like a shot of a close up of the seed and then his face and then her face and a wide shot that i if they had kept this really smooth gliding camera movement, I think would have made that moment felt feel more still and magical and like, oh, this holy presence is descending upon you instead of this quick cutting back and forth. So that was one of my final thoughts. That's a good final thought. <laughs> and for me, every time that they talked about the tree What's the tree's name? Home tree. Yeah. I could only think of Grandmother Willow from Pocahontas. (laughs) I haven't seen Pocahontas in years. I I forgot a lot of the plot points. Is Home Tree the the actual name? I I don't know. (laughs) But every time they were like... They were talking about the tree, the magical tree thing. I was just like, oh, Grandmother Willow. Oh, like her face that like was in the tree, right? Is that? Yes, that's Grandmother Willow. Yeah. And then like Pocahontas would go and she would talk Talk to to her. Yeah. Yeah. It was was a whole thing. So So that's just. The grandmother in this film. It's so rude. So rude. Avatar 3, the plot line. The return of Grandmother Willow. (laughs) (laughs) And Pocahontas shows up. (gasps) Oh my gosh, yes. And then number four would be Fern Gully. So we're doing great. (laughs) Amazing. It was good. I don't know why we're not the writers. (laughs) It's beyond me. (laughs) Oh man. We couldn't cut it with James Cameron. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Nope. Awesome. Well, this is our review of Avatar. came out in 2009. The highest grossing film of all time. $2.78 billion. And these were our thoughts on Avatar. We will be back next week with another review of some film. Yet to yet to be decided. (laughs) (laughs) But stay tuned. We hope you guys are having awesome weeks. If you haven't seen Avatar yet, you can rent it on Amazon Prime for $3.99. You know, it's a good thing to check off your list. Watch the highest grossing film of all time. Might be a good one. Have an awesome week, guys.